Welcome, church, to this week's message in God's Word. Excited to be together with you. Believe it or not, we're wrapping up what has been a series through the book of Ruth that we've been in for quite some time. In fact, if you have your Bibles, go on ahead and and turn together with me to the book of Ruth, last chapter in the book of Ruth, chapter 4, and we'll have a chance to dive right into it very soon. As you're turning there, got a question for you. When you look at your life, or as you look back upon your life, what do you see? Better yet, when you look at your life and look back upon that life of yours, what word would best describe that life of yours in summation form? Would the word legacy describe it? Because that's what I want to talk to us today about. The title of my message is Leaving a Lasting Legacy. I'm not too sure that we think about that term all that much. Um, Pulled a definition out of the dictionary for the word legacy. Quote, something transmitted by or received from an ancestor or predecessor or from the past. So when we think about legacy, and maybe this is the case for you, we think about not so much just our lives here and now, but What will be of our lives even after we go? What sort of contribution are we leaving? By me being on this earth, by me being in all of the relationships that I'm in, by me investing my life in the ways that I have, what imprint am I leaving on this earth? What sort of legacy, what sort of value, what sort of contribution have I allowed to follow me? So much so to where... Even though I may die and I may go and no longer be, what is it about me and the contribution that I made while I was on this earth is still here for others to benefit from, for others to enjoy, for others to build upon? I think that's important. Our culture and our society, I'm not too sure, thinks in these sort of ways. I mean, there were previous days and previous generations, call them the builder generation, where I think they enjoyed and had an advantage that not too many of us did. Sure, the times were not easy. They were hard. Uh, War was lurking. They either were in war or they were preparing themselves for war. And this was a generation that really had to dig deep. This was a generation where not only the military, not only the country, but the government really depended upon the average citizen to be able to contribute to something that they may not necessarily benefit from in their lifetime, but their seed, their generations, their offspring would. You see, that's important. We need to be people that see the benefit of serving, the benefit of contributing, the benefit of living, not just so much for what we get out of it ourselves, but for what subsequent generations will get out of it as well. And until and unless we do so, we're not really seeing or thinking of things the way God is. All throughout the book of Ruth, all we see is legacy. The the concern and the grieving and the pain and the tragedy that struck Naomi in her home and Ruth and Orpah and these widows had everything to do with legacy. God's commitment to preserving lineage and family line and property and land and children and grandchildren all had to do with legacy. God thinks in terms of legacy and he wants his children to think in terms of legacy. You see, the whole purpose for which these women needed to be married and have children was not just to be able to have children around the home to enjoy, but because they knew that a God was a God of the generations and not just any one generation. Did you know that? That God is not only passionate and committed to your generation, but even the one that preceded your generation and the one that follows it. Sometimes I think we can get so focused upon our age, our era, our generation, to where we think we're it that God couldn't have been around and moving and at work at any other time or any other time following us. But that's not true. That's wrong. That's a lie. That God wants to be available and present and found in every generation. And that's why He was committed to making sure that none of these families, none of these individuals, none of these family lines were ever lost through death. And so He created a provision He created a way in which that even though something as tragic as death may occur, like in Elimelech's or Malon or Kilion's case, there was something that was called a redeemer. 
There was someone that was called a kinsman redeemer who would be able to step in, which is a picture of Jesus Christ, and take an unfortunate situation and rescue that family out of that situation so that there may be hope, so that there may be promise, so that there may be future. See? And that's what we see all throughout the book of Ruth. Last week, we had a chance to look at Ruth's beautiful encounter. We saw romance in the making. We saw love on display between both Ruth and Boaz where they finally met, they finally encountered each other, not because they didn't meet before, but they met having made their intentions or her intentions clear about what she wanted from Boaz. And there were a number of takeaways that we had a chance to see from there. The first takeaway that I hope you got was that it's not a bad idea to get in front of someone. Ruth got in front of Boaz. Yes, Naomi's plan may have been a little sketchy or risky. In any case, on Ruth's part, her idea, her motivations, her intentions were pure. And here she is in front of Boaz, making her intentions known to him. And some people wonder, is that a sin? Is it wrong? Should I just pray? Should I just sit at home? Should I wait on God? Yes, pray, but also move out. And so the way this would look for us, ladies, men, would be, look, if he's in a life group, if he's in a Sunday school, if he belongs to a church, if he's serving in some ministry department, if he's going on some short-term missions trip, if she's in that area, what you need to do, fellas, what you need to do, ladies, is not just take an interest in that person, but be in the spaces where that person is. Look, it's not desperate. It's not a sin. It's God's way. And we see God showing up in his providence through Ruth's action to get in the way of Boaz. Uh, The second takeaway that we saw is, hey, don't overlook the people that God puts right in front of you. I'm afraid sometimes we're, we're thinking that he or she is in some other state, some other country. I mean, they just could not belong to my church. I mean, I know the people in my church. How could I marry them is the thought. I know we may not say it, but that's our attitude. That's our approach. Everybody's dating everyone and anything miles away from them and totally overlooking the ones that they pray with, that they do Bible study with, that they do life with, that they do church with, that they do community with. Boaz was that man. Even though he encountered her in Ruth chapter 2, that was it. (laughs) And Naomi was wondering, wait a second, I thought you came back home and you said things were good. I mean, if it's that good, my thought is it goes all the way. What happened? Have you heard from him? No. Has he talked to you? No. So Naomi said, maybe I need to get into this situation and help this. (laughs) And that's how her risky plan came about. So it was five, six, seven weeks since Boaz last encountered Ruth till what we saw in Ruth chapter 3. You see, Boaz overlooked who was in front of him. It was Ruth. We don't know why he overlooked her, but he did. And I think unless we're careful, we could do the same. So I'm asking you right now, fellas, brothers, especially if you're marriage age, if you're at that season of your life where you could be preparing yourself for marriage and you're interested in someone, I want you to not disregard the sisters and the women that are in your community, that are right there. God didn't want Boaz to disregard a Moabite woman who was right there. I think that's important. The third takeaway that we saw is every relationship has its obstacles. Amen? and obstacles are there, we learned, to be overcome, right? You'll know that he, if he's ready and willing to do what it takes to be in the relationship, he'll do what it takes to stay in the relationship. Don't take that chase away from him. If there are obstacles, that's not a sign that this is not God's will. That's a sign that this may well be God's will. If there aren't obstacles, there's a problem. And so it doesn't matter what it may be. Maybe there's financial issues. Maybe you're in school. Maybe you're both in school. Maybe your parents eh, are not too sure about him or her. Maybe there are other obstacles that may be there that you're noticing and you're tempted, unless you're careful, to think, you know what? Maybe God's not at this. Maybe I'm not meant to be married. Maybe I'm not meant to be in a relationship. Maybe, but maybe not. See, Boaz encountered obstacles, but he didn't automatically assume that that's what it meant, that that's how he was supposed to discern the will of the Lord. What did he do? He took initiative. That's what I want us to take away from that situation. Additionally, every relationship is a character test. Every relationship is a character test. 
Boaz is encountered by Ruth at midnight in his tent by his feet with his legs uncovered. (laughs) Quite a sketchy, risky, potentially compromised situation. And yet, what does Boaz do? We're all on edge. Does he exploit this situation and this young woman for his selfish purposes? No. Rather, he assumes responsibility. He protects her reputation, and he looks after his reputation, and he says, I'm going to find a plan. I may not know what to do at the moment, but I'm going to find a plan. You see? In other words, his character proved itself in that moment. There was a test, right? And a lot of times we're tempted to think, and here's an additional takeaway. You see, this is important. And that is what? Never mistake a temptation for an opportunity. Boaz didn't, we shouldn't, right? Sure, he may have had no control over, no say over Naomi's plan and how Ruth showed up and appeared to him, but he did have control over what he was going to do once that happened. Did he say, oh, since you did something that was questionable, I might as well jump in and add to the problem. No, he doesn't. Even though it looks sketchy, even though it looks a little suspect, he didn't add to it. Rather, he cleaned it up. He made it better. He had a plan that both protected Ruth's purity and reputation along with his own. I think that's an important takeaway. And that's why we're able to even have a chapter four. Were it not for that, we wouldn't have a chapter four. In chapter four, we see verse one. Now, the text opens up. Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. Okay? He said he was going to do this. He told Ruth, go back home to your mother and take all this 80 pounds of food together with you. Let her know this is God's blessing. I want you to know I'm going to work on this. Naomi assured Ruth in the last verse of chapter 3, look, the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And look what we're seeing. She's right. I don't know how, but she's right. And now Boaz has gone up to the gate. He sits down there, and behold, who shows up? The Redeemer that Boaz told Ruth was first up for her and for her land. The Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. It just so happened. (laughs) The Bible says, it just so happened. As Boaz shows up at the gate, he's sitting down, engaging with the elders and the townspeople, and lo and behold, who comes? The Redeemer shows up. He says, hey, hey, come, 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 come. And he has him sit down. Along with him sitting down, he tells the elders to come on over. And he says, let's have a conversation. First, let's catch up, see how everyone is doing, how each other's families are. And then he poses a statement and a question for this Redeemer. Now, keep in mind, remember what a Redeemer is. A Redeemer, in order to be a Redeemer, had to have three requirements. Number one, a Redeemer had to be a relative to the family. In particular, if there was a marriage and the husband died, and now we have a widow, the deceased husband's relative was a kin and therefore a potential redeemer. That was a, a relative. Could be a brother, could be a distant relative. The second requirement was that this redeemer, whoever it was, had to have the wherewithal or the means to be able to pay the price, whatever that price is, for both land and persons, family. And the third requirement was that this Redeemer had to be willing to be able to redeem. The reason why I say willing is because written within and into God's law, God made sure that this redemption process was not obligatory. It was entirely voluntary. Okay, And so the person, if they were to go forward with this, would have to be willing to do so. And so here... This redeemer comes. He's the first kin. He's the first redeemer. He's runner up. All right. And Boaz has a word with him. And he says, All right, let me catch you up a little bit. You remember Naomi? Yes. Okay. Well, you know she's back, right? She's in Bethlehem. You remember she was in Boab in Moab. She's here now. And um, remember, she's her husband died, right? So we know she's a widow. Along with that, she has no grandchildren. She's in a pretty tough spot. 
and a desperate situation. She's brought Ruth along with her, you can recall. She has this property, and she's thinking about and she's planning on selling it so that she can take the revenue from the property to be able to live off of. She needs a redeemer. And from what we gather, you're it. And so we need someone to be able to assume responsibility for the land and the property that she is interested in selling so that she can live. But you got to make a decision quick, all right? Because if you don't, I'm up. But I can't go up next unless you decide first. You see, Boaz had this plan all along. You see, here he is, he's showing up at this gate. Now, keep in mind, the gate, you have to understand, is the place where business is transacted. That's, that's the gate. The gate is, I know we don't have gates, but this would be akin to where real estate transactions take place, where judges adjudicate cases, where lawyers advocate on behalf of their clients, where families, neighbors, citizens within a town settle matters. This is a place of market. So this would be a marketplace. This is where exchanges of goods and services would take place. Basically, everything happened here. All right? This was court. Um, this, this was the city council chambers. Um, this is where your real estate office takes place. This was the steps where auctions um, are take, pla- take place and bids are accepted. This was a place where citizens are able to exchange goods and services. Everything happened here. All right? So you could understand why Boaz would come here. Why is this important? It's not a church. It's not a synagogue. It's not a temple. It's not a sanctuary. In fact, if you take yourself back from the beginning of Ruth all the way to the present, there's actually no mention made of any one of those things. Church, synagogue, temple. In fact, Boaz, hmm, he's not a priest. He's not uh, a prophet. He's not a pastor. He's, he's a business owner. He's, he's, he's a man who, who owns a grocery store, if you will. He's, he's an owner of a field. He's an owner of a place that produces foods and goods and services for the townspeople to benefit from. He creates jobs. Um, he feeds people. He, he, he helps the economy. He's somebody who has value, but it, it doesn't all happen at the synagogue or at the church. Right? I think this is important. Boaz is a, a, a model for us, an example for us of how you could be a Christian in the marketplace. Sometimes I fear, as Christians, we have a tendency to create this separation, this sacred and secular divide, if you will. And I think that's unfortunate. And so we see a lot of value and purpose and intention in what happens at church, but not so much what happens at work. Many of you have jobs to wake up to tomorrow morning. Many of you have clothes that needs to be folded, laundry that needs to be done, a lawn that needs to be mowed. These days, kids that need to be homeschooled, emails that need to be composed. You got just Monday stuff, Tuesday stuff, Thursday stuff. And unless we're careful, we can look at that and say, ah, God can't be in that. That's just my work. That's just my responsibility. That's just stuff I got to get done to get onto the good stuff. That's not Boaz, and I'm thankful for that. That's not what the gate represents. What the gate represents is that we don't have to wait till Sunday or till we get to the church to really see God show up. God's prepared to show up on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday. Your real estate transactions are spiritual. Your contractual agreements are spiritual, right? Your, your, your mortgage refinance loans are spiritual, okay? Um, your buying and selling is spiritual. The things that you do at your job with your work is spiritual. It's not just what happens on Sunday at church that counts. It's what happens on any day as long as you do it with a view toward God, that counts. That's what Boaz and this gate teaches us. And so what I want to do is I want to elevate your perception of your work. If that doesn't happen, the tendency is for people to think, you know what, I think the solution to my misery, my frustration, the drudgery at work, just my feeling discontent is I need to quit my job 
And what I need to do is enter into full-time ministry. I've heard that. I hear that. I don't know. Maybe that's you. That the solution, the panacea, the cure-all is I need to leave this place and I need to enter into full-time vocational ministry. Could be. That may be God's call. But I want you to be sure that that's God's call. God doesn't lead us into vocational ministry. God doesn't lead us into full-time ministry from a place of frustration and discontentment. You see, Boaz was less concerned with with entering into full-time ministry. He was more concerned with being a full-time believer at his job that he wanted to view as a ministry. Okay, That's important for us. Because what I want you to do is I want you to be able to see that no matter where you are, what season you're in, God's there. Isn't that the title of the series of ours? I know the title of the message is Leaving a Lasting Legacy, but the title of the series is God in Everyday Life. God in Everyday Life. I want you to to stop waiting for Sunday to see God show up. I I want you to believe. I want you to hope again. I want you to trust that God is prepared to show up in the everyday of your life. Because what that's going to do is going to cause you to look at those diapers that need to be changed. The, the child that needs to be burped, the spouse that wants time, the, the kids that want you to play with them in the backyard, the walks that you take, the essays that you have to write, the tests you have to take, the classes that need to be passed, the assignments that need to be turned in. I want you to see all of that as a place in which God's prepared to be present as long as you are. And Boaz believes God's with him in this. Here's another thing. Boaz is pretty shrewd. <laughs> Boaz has a plan. Boaz says, look, Ruth, don't worry about this. I think I got an idea. Some people, I'm afraid in the church, in the body of Christ, see business as a sin, negotiations as a sin, um, planning and coming up with deals as a sin, real estate transactions. It's like, that can't be spiritual. It's like, it just looks wrong. It looks evil. And I'm just going to ask you right now, we need to give that up. Boaz is fulfilling the purpose and the plan of God with what he's doing. He's got a plan. Yes, he prayed, but he's also got a plan. Some of us are all into prayer, right? Maybe you're one of them. Maybe I'm one of them, right? We're good at praying. We're good at giving it to God, but yeah, that's it. (laughs) We need a plan, all right? Pray, but have a plan. Have some steps that you're going to take to be able to fulfill that plan. You see, God wants to to use Boaz as the answer to Boaz's prayer. Remember, Boaz prayed for Ruth in chapter 2, that she would be married, that she would find rest, that she would find a place where she would no longer have to worry about her future, that she would find security. Guess what? Tag, Boaz, you're it. He's about to be that answer to his prayer. So unless you're ready to, unless you're ready to assume the responsibility to be the answer to your own prayers, don't pray, because <laughs> God may just tag you and say, hey, great prayer. Now, I'm ready to use you. Come up with a plan. Boaz has a plan. Boaz has a plan. And it's a plan where he has tactics. He doesn't tell this Redeemer everything. He just lays it out. He rolls it out. This is important, right? Some of us Christians are too naive, <laughs> and we, we mistake that for godliness. No, right? Jesus said, be be, be gentle as a dove, but be wise as a what? A serpent, right? There's nothing wrong with being shrewd. There's nothing wrong with wanting to have a deal that is good and that works, and Boaz is there. And notice, he's at this point where he comes up with this plan, he explains it to him, and then he says to him, if you don't want to redeem, just let me know, because I come after you. And he says, oh, okay. So he says in verse 4, I'll redeem it. I'll redeem the land. So you think, uh, Boaz is like, uh, you, you will? Wait a second. Um, wait, you will? Well, okay, I just want to make sure you understand something though, okay? All right, just want to be clear because, I mean, we're at the gate. We want to be clear. We don't want to be misleading anyone. We got elders, right? We're about to go through our our custom of notarizing and signing off and making sure this deal is settled. But before we do, let's make sure you're clear. All right, Redeemer? By the way, we don't have a name for him. You notice that? In verse 1 and 2, he says, Friend, come, sit, here, 
Literally in the Hebrew, it's not friend. You want to know what it is literally in the Hebrew? It's our best translation in English would be so and so. So Boaz meets Mr. So-and-so. Okay? So Mr. So-and-so says, I'll redeem it. How come he doesn't have a name? Well, it has a lot to do with his character. I think Boaz knew his name, but the author and the writer, the narrator of the book of Ruth, chose to leave it out to be able to communicate something. This man doesn't deserve to be mentioned. We're about to find out why. But at this point, he says, all right, sounds like a deal to me. He's, he's one of those guys. You know, you know one of those guys? He's always looking for a come up, always looking for, huh, you just told, okay, so it's in my interest. I profit, I benefit. Okay. I mean, it doesn't seem like a bad idea because I always look at things through my eyes and through my lens. Why not? I'll redeem it. And then Boaz says, in verse 5, then Boaz said, well, I need you to know one thing, though. What's that? Verse 5, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite. <laughs> he says, Ruth, the Moabite. You know, the widow of the dead? Yeah. In order to perpetuate the name of the dead in the inheritance. So he's like, oh, okay, okay, okay. Wait, wait, wait a second. Time out. So I can't just get the land. I also got to get the woman and the, and the mother-in-law? Yes. Ruth the Moabite. And what does he say? He says in the next verse, then the Redeemer said, uh, scratch that. <laughs> On second thought, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself for I cannot redeem it. You see, <laughs> this man is amazing. Here he is, he hears it out. Initially, he wants, he said, it's a go. Let's do it. Where do I sign? Or in their case, where do I take my sandal off? And he says, wait a second, just so you know, you don't just get the land, you also get the wife. Why does he turn it down? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One of which has to do with the fact that he's thinking, wait a second, how am I going to go back home and explain this to my wife? <laughs> that she, she's going to have another woman coming home. A whole family coming home. That may be part of it, but I think the, what's more important is, you got to keep in mind, when the child, if he were to take Ruth on and father a child with her, the child that comes up between the two of them is the one who ultimately is the heir of the assets and the estate. See that? Okay. So he may have children of his own, and he realizes, wait a second here. So I don't benefit from this. I'm basically investing in something, pouring into something, taking on a responsibility that I don't get to personally benefit from. Someone else is going to benefit from. I don't like that. That's not the kind of deal I'm interested in. That's not the way I roll. That's not the way I work. I'm not interested in those kinds of things. I like deals. I like plans. I like responsibilities where I alone benefit, not where others benefit. So this Redeemer is looking at this situation, looking at this opportunity purely from a self-centered perspective, from a self-interested perspective. He's not looking at it from any other way. He sees it as a profit and a loss situation. Boaz, on the other hand, is looking at this situation as someone who's prepared to be both a husband and a father. He's not looking at it as a loss. He's looking at it as, this is my opportunity to be a husband and a father. You see, because this Redeemer wasn't prepared to be, he wasn't prepared to assume the responsibility because he realized to assume this woman as my wife and to assume the child or the children that may come from this relationship will mean I will have to be sacrificial, I will have to be selfless, I will have to be other-centered, I will have to focus and orient my life from this time forward around others other than myself. I'm not ready for that. I like business deals, but not those kind. Boaz, on the other hand, was saying, you know what? I'm ready for it. This is the very thing I've been waiting for. You see, in our culture and in our society, we frown upon, like, what are you doing getting married? Why so quickly? Why the rush? Why not just be in a relationship? 
Why tie the knot? Why get hitched? What's that all about? You know what's going to happen. You see, a lot of times we can get discouraged by people around us from entering into something that God says is blessed, that God created, God instituted. Along with that children, it's like, why have them? You know they come with an expense, don't you? You know they're expensive, don't you? You know what that's going to mean, don't you? And it's like, why assume that responsibility? And we can easily imbibe that to where even though we call ourselves Christians and even though we're in the church, we have the same attitude toward relationship and marriage and children and parenting and responsibility just like the world. The Apostle Paul says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but rather be transformed through the renewing of your mind. And I'm thankful that Boaz models for us someone who is the exact opposite of this quote-unquote redeemer. He's not much of a redeemer, is he? (laughs) Exactly. And he offers us an alternative. Who am I? Is the question you and I need to ask. Do I resemble more the redeemer? Who looks at situations, looks at opportunities, looks at relationships, looks at cases where I can be responsible and be involved and bring value as something that only benefit me? And if they do, I'm in? Or am I someone like Boaz who says, you know what, regardless of what I get out of it, I'm prepared to give. Remember, after all, Boaz was someone who is a giver, we saw last week, not a taker. He was someone who poured into people's lives, not took from their lives. God wants us to be a Boaz, not this kind of redeemer. He wants us to be the other kind of redeemer that Boaz is prepared to be. The redeemer saw Ruth as a problem. Boaz saw her as God's favor. God's favor. The story continues. And he says there in verse 9, after, in, in, verse, in verse 7, now this was the custom in former times. So now that this Redeemer has made himself clear, he's like, look, I'm out. I don't want any part with this. If you're telling me that's what it's going to mean, nah. And Boaz was like, look, just let us know. I just want to make sure you're clear. I'm trying to get in. Maybe you've been in a situation where you're trying to, trying to buy a house. You put a bid in. You put an offer in. But you realize Sellers told you, you know what? We would love to consider you, but we've got one or two others ahead of you. Let's see how it goes. If it doesn't go well with them and they opt out, you're in. And you could just imagine being on edge. You could imagine Ruth and Naomi were on edge. They weren't too fond of this Redeemer. They seemed to have known of him. They were hoping that Boaz would be the one. And for a moment, they thought that Ruth was going to have to marry someone that she wasn't initially inclined to. After all, she approached Boaz. And here, this custom is going to take place. This custom, verse 7, in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, your witnesses this day, that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech. So what would happen is, I know in our day and age, we have notaries, we have certified mail, we have um, mortgage um, agreements, we have um, clauses, we have um, pre-approved agreements, we have application forms in which we can sign off and make sure that whether it's a joint contract or an individual contract, both parties are entering into, with open eyes, an agreement that both are on on good terms with, right? And we have our way of doing that. We may have stamps that seal it. We may have ways of being able to certify it, notarize it, approve of it, and make it official. In their day and age, they didn't have the kind of systems that you and I do. What they would do is, Um, The person who is supposed to be the redeemer who forfeits that responsibility is supposed to take their sandal off as a way of demonstrating that they're opting out. Well, if there's no redeemer to step in in their place, the person that they were supposed to redeem, the woman, has every right, based upon the law of Moses, to step up to the individual who's taken off his sandal and spit in his face. And what this communicated is this is a way of shaming this individual. 
that he would choose rather to hold on to his own rights. He would choose to preserve himself rather than honor the life and the legacy of a deceased person in their community, in their tribe, among their people, right? And so the woman who is dependent upon this person, assuming their role and taking on this responsibility in the stead of her deceased husband is able to step up to this individual and spit on him. The reason why we don't see anyone being spat on right here is because Boaz stepped up, right? Boaz stepped up. And Boaz stepped up to assume what would have been and what should have been this man's responsibility as a redeemer. And so all he had to do was take off his sandal as a way of demonstrating that this was going to be exchanged. You see, they didn't have um, auditors that you would bring out before buying a property or house inspectors that would look at and survey not only the lot and the land and the property and the foundation. What they would do is both parties would go out and they would survey the field. And part of what they would do is they would walk it. They would walk it. They would walk it. And they're saying, what am I inheriting? What property am I redeeming here? And they would walk in. They would say, from here to here to there. You see that tree from there? That's yours. That's yours. And from here to there, that's yours. Are we good? So after they walked it and were in agreement about how much of the land ultimately belongs to them, they say, we're good. It belongs to me. And so what they would do is they would take off their sandals. They would exchange them. And the other person would put their foot down. And that was a way of being able to say, deal? Deal. I know it's weird, but some of the ways we do things could be weird for others as well. And so here they did. And Boaz wanted to make it clear to the elders, you all are witnesses. You all are witnesses. You've, you've heard us exchange. He's forfeited that responsibility. I'm assuming it, which means I get land, I get property, and I also get Ruth the Moabite. You all are witnesses. This is something that's been done in the open. This is not something that was done in any sort of mischievous way. That's important. You see, as Christians, we need to model how ethics in our business practices. We shouldn't try to, in the interest to, no doubt, get a good deal, in the interest to profit, in the interest to capitalize upon our return and our investments, which is all fine. We shouldn't do so at the expense of other people. Never. That's not Christian ethics. And I'm thankful that we have that with, with Boaz. And so he appeals to these elders. Not only does he appeal, verse 10, also he goes on and he says, I have acquired to be my wife, Ruth, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. It's just amazing. <laughs> Get this. This man, Boaz, is prepared to, yes, he's attracted to Ruth. Yes, he's interested in Ruth. Yes, he loves Ruth. But also notice that he's concerned for, did you hear that? He's concerned for Naomi's husband, Elimelech, and especially Ruth's deceased husband, Malon. It's like you would wonder, like, why would you bother? He's concerned about making sure that he honors his life and his legacy. Let me see if I could add one more thing. Malon wasn't very honorable, was he? Not only did Elimelech and the brothers go to Moab, which was forbidden, the sons married Moabite women. I mean, their lives weren't all that exemplary, were they? That's what honorable men do. Honorable men honor other men. And Boaz is taking the higher ground in this instance. I think we could learn a thing or two from that. Verse 11, well, at the end of verse 10, he says, you are witnesses this day, he says. He says, elders, people, women, townspeople, you all are witnesses, not just in terms of him acquiring the land, but also entering into marriage with Ruth. This is important when it comes to our relationships. You see, how many people do we have involved in our lives and especially in our relationships? Let me ask you, if you're in a relationship, if you're interested in a relationship, how many other people are involved to offer advice, to offer counsel, or to offer input 
to help that relationship thrive. I'm afraid a lot of times what we do is, I've seen this all the time, you almost know when somebody's in a relationship. How? You don't see them anymore. Here they are in community, doing life, always around, never lose sight of them. They're at every event, every get-together, and then all of a sudden, it's like, where is so-and-so? I don't know. Must be in a relationship, right? For some reason, we get it into our minds. We think, if as soon as I enter into a relationship, we pair off and we hide ourselves, and we're always doing our own thing. Sure, there may be a place to date ourselves, but Boaz and Ruth, from the beginning, have had their relationship and their interaction lived out in front of others. They met in a field with others around. They saw each other again with others around. Here, Boaz is making sure that he's taking initiative with this relationship, which is a good first step. But along with that, he's inviting others in to this decision-making. In other words, what he's saying is he is confident that people can scrutinize him and Ruth and their relationship and their relationship can survive the scrutiny of the witnesses. That's how confident he is. And I fear that a lot of times one of my concerns is the reason why we don't allow our relationships to go live. Facebook official. The reason why we don't bring people into our relationships is we're afraid they may know that we're not ready or that the other person is not ready or that they may see something in us that may cause the other person not to want to go forward with us or they may see something in the other person that may where they may try to discourage us from going forward with them. But look, if you're after a legacy, if, if you're after the kind of marriage I hope you want, you would want to bring anyone in. Because if there is something I need to know, I would like to know on this side of the wedding vows, not on the other. And Boaz is that kind of person. Is there, if there's anything that needs to be said about me or about Ruth, this is that opportunity. He invites witnesses in. I want you to invite people into your life. Could there be? Proverbs says, in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. In the multitude of counselors, there's safety. Right? Right? The enemy loves to just pair us off and single us out because that's when opportunities take place. Ladies, look, one of the ways in which you can know that this guy is more than likely a candidate is that he's, he's not keeping you to himself. He wants you to meet his pastor. He wants you to meet his church community. He wants you to meet his family. He, he wants you to meet his world, right? So if I'm going to marry you for life, I better get a good idea of what your life is like right now so that I know what I'm getting myself into. Amen? You see, guys, I remember growing up, all throughout our teenage years, we knew if a guy did everything he could to avoid family and friends and community knowing who he's dating, we know he doesn't have a potential mate. What he has is a side chick, right? What he has is someone that he, he doesn't mind being with, but he, he, he's not all that interested in leaving a legacy with. You see that? Right? So what I want to advise all of us to do is to be about not so much purely having a good time with the people that we're in relationship with, but asking ourselves, will I be able to leave a lasting legacy? See, Boaz looked at Ruth. He spent time with her. He learned of her and he received input from others about her. And he says, this is the kind of woman that I'm not just going to have a good time with. I'm going to be able to leave a lasting legacy with. That's important. I want you to look at that person you're dating right now. Or I want you to look at that person that you're tempted to want to consider to date. Ask yourself, what can I get out of this relationship? Is it just a good time? Or is it a legacy? Because if it's not a legacy, it's not a relationship worth entering into. The only reason why Boaz was prepared to bring this relationship to light was because of the fact that he knew that Ruth was someone that he can leave a lasting legacy with. You see, a lot of times we think, oh, if I date, if it's not happening now, it won't happen then. The way you find out 
that you two are meant for each other. It's, it's not at 11 p.m. in his apartment, on his couch, under the covers with Netflix movie, okay? That's not where you discern the will of the Lord for this relationship. Boaz doesn't take Ruth there. No, Boaz brings it to the light of day. He takes this relationship to where? The gate, which is a picture of the place where accountability is. Take your relationship to the gate, to the elders, to the women, to the townspeople. Take it to the place where it can be scrutinized. And if it could survive that scrutiny, guess what? It's a relationship meant to be. If not, it's a relationship you don't want to be in in the first place. Boaz is there. And not only does he say you're witnesses, what does he do? It says there, then, verse 11, all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. This is beautiful. They're praying. In verse 11, the people pray. Again, in verse 11, the women pray. Again, uh, further down in verse 14, the elders pray. There's prayer all throughout the book of Ruth. Isn't that beautiful? Who's praying for you? True or false? I'm prepared to believe one of the main reasons why, the main reason why Boaz's life was blessed and Ruth's life was blessed and their relationship found favor is because they had people all around them praying for them. You see, if, if all you're doing is busy hiding your relationship right now, what do you miss out on? You miss out on people praying for you. You see, you see, it's not a bad thing to bring your relationship into the light. You shouldn't see it that way. Boaz and Ruth don't. The fact that others know, now they can pray. One of the reasons why people can't pray is because they don't know you and the person you're in relationship with enough to be able to know what to pray about. And so my encouragement to you is bring that relationship out into the light. Allow others trustworthy. Allow others, men, women of different ages and backgrounds and years of relationship and marriage to be able to pour into the relationship, speak into the relationship, pray over the relationship. Because why? You, you and your relationship and your marriage is going to be blessed. It's going to be blessed. It's been said, a couple that prays together, huh, stays together. I kind of want to take it a, a step further. A couple that has a community that's prepared to pray for that couple even more stays together. I'm afraid that there are so many couples out there struggling, dying, trying to survive with hidden challenges and relationship breakdowns and conflicts Going to church, attending service, in ministry, involved, but no one knows. No one is in their life. No one is aware. No one is able to come alongside them and, and encourage them and comfort them and support them and pray over them and walk with them through those seasons because they've learned to keep these relationships to themselves. And I'm thankful that Boaz and Ruth have the people, it says, and then the women and the elders, they pray. They pray. If you want to get your marriage off to a good start, make sure you build it on the foundation of prayer. Along with that, bring people in. As I know people often say, I'm afraid, man. Last time I tried to let people in to my challenges and my problems, it was bad, Neb. It was bad. Well, this is what I'm telling you. Find out who are the people in your community who are praying people. Not gossiping people, praying people. Invite those people into your life and your relationship. Why? Because you're going to be blessed. How does it end? How does it end? Verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, again, they're going to pray, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may His name the baby, be renowned, literally famous in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age. Isn't that what grandchildren do to grandparents when they come around? It's like, wow, they just bring so much life 
to this home. When I thought everything was over, when I thought my life that was worth living was behind me, lo and behold, with these grandchildren coming, with this grandchild now born to Naomi, what do they say? God has given you a son. Wait a second, a son? Naomi? I thought he gave Ruth a son. Yeah. But isn't that what God is trying to communicate? Is a lot of times the way in which we invested ourselves and involved ourselves in another life, even though they're the ones that may be reaping from it, they're the ones that may be benefiting from it, it's almost as if it was ours. It was us. You see, what God is trying to say is, it doesn't have to be you that produces it or that does it or from which it results for it to count. You see, we're supposed to rejoice when others rejoice. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Ruth has cause to rejoice because now she has a child, Obed. And therefore, Naomi has cause to rejoice. This is what leaving a lasting legacy is about. Maybe you're uh, in ministry, or maybe you're a church. I remember I've seen a situation recently where um, a church that was on their way to dying in another state was able to be assumed and merged together with a younger church. And here this church was on its way, widowed, if you will, allegorically, to dying. And this younger church was able to take them in and, and merge. And now they're one. And this church at one time was beginning to think that their doors were closed and that there was no hope for them. There was no future for them. And everything that was good that came from them was back in their heyday, but no future. And here this younger congregation comes in, merges together with this church, and God brings about a, a resurrection situation. What does they say to Naomi? It'll be nourishment, nourishment to your old age and restoration to your life. That's what that congregation was. Is even though we may pass and even though we may go, at least we know one thing, that there's going to still be a church here, present, preaching the gospel, bringing forth the good news, bringing hope and life to people, that God's work is going to continue to go forward. That's what leaving a legacy is all about. I want to close with something. Naomi knew that Ruth bore Obed. But what she did not know, because she wasn't able to live long enough to know, was that Obed would be the grandfather of guess who? Yeah. King David. The greatest king that Israel would ever know and have. Israel hasn't even begged God and its leaders for a king yet. And here it's already being prophesied. It's already being foreseen. It's already being envisioned that there was going to be one born to Obed, to Jesse, to Jesse, who would be David, who would be the one who would be the greatest king that Israel would ever know or have. Naomi didn't know that. But this was her legacy. You see, she didn't need to know it. She just needed to be faithful to her God, who was faithful to her in her lifetime. She just needed to live in such a way that her life was counting not only for time, but also for eternity. Not only for today, but also for tomorrow. So much so that even if she died and left, her legacy would remain. Her legacy is remaining. Hey, it gets better. Not only does Israel get the greatest king that they've ever known, guess who comes from David? The king of kings. Yes, Naomi and Ruth are the great ancestor, great ancestor to our Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate kinsman redeemer. Isn't that good news? You, you don't know what God is weaving and what God is doing with your life. And if your way of determining and detecting that is well, what's happening right now that I see and what's happening in my lifetime that I see and that I benefit from, you could be missing out big time. What if I were to tell you that much of what God is up to may well happen after you die? Are you prepared to still serve him and live for him? Because that's what we see here with Naomi and Ruth. Guess who Boaz's parent is? 
Guess who Boaz's mother is? You ready? Rahab. Who's Rahab? She was a prostitute who protected and spared the men of Israel who could have been apprehended and killed. Yes, she's someone who has a past. Yes, she's someone who has a racy past. But notice here, it's no surprise to me where Boaz got the heart of compassion for Ruth. It's no surprise to me how Boaz was prepared to not see her as a problem, but as a blessing and as God's favor. It's no surprise to me that Boaz did not see Ruth and her past as a Moabite and her past as someone who worshiped the false god as an obstacle that could not be overcome. Why? Because he himself is someone who has a story. Isn't that interesting? The, the people who are able to be the most gracious are the people who've tasted and experienced grace themselves. Isn't that beautiful? And I think Boaz models that. He's like, how can I hold you at a distance? How can I say I could never marry her? How can I ever say, regardless of where I am in my lifetime, because I know my story? Never forget your story. Because you don't know who God may want you to love and serve and be generous to and be gracious to. That's the story of the book of Ruth. I hope you're encouraged. I hope you're moved by this. So much so, I want to close with this. In Matthew's genealogy, guess what we have recorded there for us? In Matthew in chapter 1, we are told about someone. It says there in verse 4, And Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, in verse 5. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, you see that there? And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. Ruth made it into the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? I want you to be about leaving a lasting legacy. Whatever you got to do, I want you to understand, look, just as Boaz had to be a relative in order for Ruth and Naomi to benefit from him, so Jesus is God become man so that he might be a nearer relative to you and me. Just as Naomi and Ruth were helpless to be able to save themselves, you and I were incapable of saving ourselves. Just as Boaz was under no obligation to have to redeem Naomi and Ruth, so Jesus was under no obligation to have to redeem you and me, but he did so out of love for us. Just as Boaz needed to have the wherewithal and the means to be able to pay the price for both the property and for Ruth and Naomi, so Jesus paid the price with his own death in order to redeem you and me from sin and from Satan and from death and from the wrath of God. Just as Boaz had to make a plan to make a way, so Jesus has made a plan to be able to save us from our plight. Just as Boaz prepared an estate and an inheritance that Ruth would benefit from. So Jesus promises us, I go to prepare a place for you so that there in my Father's house are many mansions for you. Jesus is coming back soon. He's our great Redeemer friend. He's the one that ultimately solves our greatest problem. Boaz may have solved one problem, but he didn't solve Ruth and Naomi's greatest problem. Jesus that great and glorious Redeemer, that great and glorious Boaz is the one who came to solve our greatest problem. I want you to take heart today that as we close, you have so much reason and I have so much reason to have hope again, to live again, and to see our tragedy and our loss turn into joy and new life and new birth as God intervenes and weaves his plan and his purpose in our lives and through our lives for his glory and the good of who knows how many. But the question is, are you going to leave a lasting legacy? Are you going to live to leave a lasting legacy? Father, we come before you 
And we pray, thanking you for this story of Ruth. Thanking you for what that story communicates to us about your faithfulness and your goodness and your kindness. God, that there is hope that we can see you turn ashes into beauty, that you can restore the years that the locusts have eaten, that even though tragedy and loss and adversity and pain may mark our past, we don't any longer have to live in our past, that we can believe again, we can trust again in the providence of God, the goodness of God, the sovereignty of God, the fact that you are a God who's not only in control, but that you are good, that you're not only able to save, you desire to save, that you're not only able to rescue us, you desire to rescue us. And Lord, I pray, encourage your people, strengthen hearts. May we move forward and out from this series that's come to a close, believing again and knowing that you weren't just prepared to live out your providence in Ruth and Naomi and Boaz's life, you're prepared to live out your providence in and through each and every one of our lives. And God, we celebrate you. God, we thank you. God, we glorify you. God, we honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.